Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. In 2020, millions of Americans took to the streets to protest police violence. They were met with police violence on a massive scale. Shootings, vehicle attacks, and assassinations occurred alongside these protests, often in defense of the police. And in total, at least 25 Americans died. We now know that President Trump repeatedly urged General Mark Milley to deploy U.S. military forces to crack down violently on demonstrations. Milley claims that Trump told him to have his soldiers crack skulls, beat the fuck out of, and just shoot protesters. In the end, we were all lucky. Military leaders, including General Milley, resisted calls to use their men to suppress domestic dissent. National Guard were called in to police several major cities— 
But in many cases, their behavior was tame compared to the militarized police who more reliably shot and beat protesters. For millions of Americans, 2020 was their first exposure to the violence the state will do to avoid change. And then, Trump lost the election. He and his followers tried to carry out a coup but failed, for now. And millions of Americans who'd taken to the streets mostly went back to their lives. Some were satisfied justice had been done. Others were furious to have stopped short of instituting real change. But at the end of the day, business went on as usual. A version of normal prevailed. In 2021, the military of Myanmar, known as the Tatmadaw, overthrew the elected government in a coup. Hundreds of thousands of citizens, most of them young Gen Z and millennial men and women, took to the streets. Police responded with tear gas, water cannons, and eventually bullets. The international community expressed its horror at the brutality of the Tatmadaw. But that's all they did. Over the course of several months, the military pushed protesters mostly out of the cities, and a protest movement against the military coup turned into a civil war. Now those same protesters, mostly kids who wanted nothing more than a normal life, have become revolutionaries. With homemade guns, 3D-printed rockets, and stolen rifles, they battle the Tatmadaw. Some of them fight in the jungles, some of them fight in the cities, and some of them fight on the internet. This is their story. We're sitting in a large suburban home in Mysot, Thailand, a small city on the border of Myanmar. The boys singing and playing music around us range in age from 17 to 22. Their existence in Thailand is a crime. If they are caught here, they'll be forced to cross the border, into Myanmar, whose government executed their friends and sold the organs for profit. But tonight, they're playing music. We're drinking beer. Later, James Stout and I will play pool with them and get our asses just catastrophically wrecked. We met Andy, age 22 and head of the family, through his Instagram page. That's not his real name, but for obvious reasons, we can't identify him. We first met when I sent him a DM asking if we could buy one of his photos for our first series on Myanmar. He was a bit skeptical, but I tried my best to get him to see we just wanted to give him money and promote his work. Over the next six months or so, we went from talking on the phone to messaging almost every day, to Robert and I booking tickets to Thailand, to sitting on the top floor of their house. It used to be his landlord's office, but now it's home to Andy and his partner Sarah. That's also not her real name, because she's a citizen of a Western nation working in Thailand. The boys we talk about are his brothers, his cousin, and friends. They live in a small building across the garden, and in the daytime, they sit under a gazebo and play their guitars. The first night we met Andy and Sarah, we sat behind a bar in an unpaved alleyway. We drank beer out of sippy cups, because selling beer is still banned under local COVID regulations, but apparently the cops don't check sippy cups. We drank far too much, in fact, and the next day I woke up with a headache and a blurry photo of me, Robert, and Andy engaged in a pose which was half hug and half mutual support structure. We walked home, and according to my phone, at some point we took photos of a puppy, and, in a hopefully unrelated incident, at some point I started bleeding. It was immediately obvious that Andy needed the chance to blow off some steam. Over the last year and change, he has chronicled every stage of the coup and its aftermath. In early videos, we see joyous protests, moments of resistance and splendor in the streets of cities like Miawadi. Later, we see violence, death, and guerrilla warfare. Andy didn't have what you would call an easy childhood. 
thanks in part to Myanmar's long history of revolutions being crushed by the army. People there, like people everywhere, want to be free and determine their own futures. And so each generation has its own uprising, and each generation has its own massacre, and very little progress to show for it. I was born in 2000, so um, when I was seven, 2007, there was a revolution. It's called Saffron Revolution. It's it wasn't it wasn't like this, you know. It wasn't like what happened now, but like there were a lot of people that were involved in it. A lot of people got killed, um, and a lot of people left Myanmar and came to the refugee camps in here. And we were one of the families that came to the refugee camps. Um, and in Mae Sot, yeah, in Mae Thailand, yeah. yeah. Andy's mother is Buma, the dominant ethnic group in Myanmar, due to their decades-long control of the military and government. His father is Karin the ethnic group once used by the British government as soldiers. Since 1949, the Karin have fought a war in the mountains against the Tat Madaw. Their name is often anglicized to be spelled just like the English name Karen, which, given present internet trends, makes explaining the conflict sometimes awkward. Andy primarily identifies as, and was raised, Buma. His family left after the Saffron Revolution. They did not flee to escape political repression, but because the economy had collapsed. This put them in an awkward position in the camps, which were filled mostly with Karen people who had fled state violence. We weren't refugees, right? We were more like, um, how do you say, like economic refugees? You know, we go because, not because our village has been burned down and our family has been killed, you know? So then if we were to go back to Yangon, we still could find a job, we still could find, you know? Um, but then for these Karen people, like, this place is the only place that they could exist at that moment, right? And yeah. probably still now too. So, uh, yeah, so they said that, but that, that education wasn't very good there. There's the, the life wasn't good. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was very bad, honestly. Yeah. It was very bad. It was a lot of violence, a lot of hate, a lot of, understandable, you know, like these people have gone through so much shit and so much trauma that, and nothing, no one is coming there to but fix that. So I, they had a lot of anger, they had a lot of problems. Um, but my, my mom said, yeah, we're going back because the education here is very bad. And um, if you go back to Myanmar, at least, you know, if you do like the thing that people do, maybe you'll get somewhere. Yeah. In the future here, there's no future. That's what she said. So we went back um, and I stayed in Myanmar for like four years. Andy had never been very political. His family was more or less neutral, tending to side with the military more often than not out of a sense of inertia. Myanmar tended to cartwheel between attempts at democracy and military dictatorship. So when the world media celebrated their first democratic elections in 25 years, in 2015, Andy was not particularly excited. Yeah, so, I, I mean, we, we did realize that there was a change in the country, right? Because um, we grew up in the military dictatorship, but then when Aung San Suu Kyi take over, took over, um, there were some changes. Like the, the phones got cheaper, the internet got cheaper. And if you look back, then you can see big, big changes. But the thing is, it was never real democracy. And I think a lot of people in the Western countries thought that it was democracy when Aung San Suu Kyi took over. Aung San Suu Kyi came to prominence during a 1988 uprising against the military, which ended in bloodshed in the streets of Yangon. And she'd been a longtime democratic activist. As Andy noted, Westerners celebrated her election as the first democratic head of state for Myanmar. She even won a Nobel Prize. But the agreement her party had made with the military gave the generals significant permanent control over the government. 
But I think most of the people in the country knew it wasn't real democracy because, you know, the military always had 25% seat, 25 seats in the parliament, right? Like they were always, they were in charge of electricity, internet, all these, all these big things, weapons, army, like the military itself. They are in charge of all these things and they make it very clear. And even with a Nobel Prize, Aung San Suu Kyi did not fight to stop the Tat Madaw from pursuing their decades-long wars against the ethnic armed organizations in the hills. Nor did she act to stop their ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya people. In fact, she and others in her party didn't even call them Rohingya. They called them Bengali and insisted they were illegally residing in Myanmar, despite mountains of evidence documenting a group by that name living in what is now the Rakhine state. I think most Americans, and Westerners in general, can empathize with the feeling of electing someone who promises change and then getting very little of what you'd expected. I think Aung San Suu Kyi used to be this hope that that was like the opposition against the military. But I think when she got power, um, she couldn't do all the things that she promised to do. Or like, like you know, we, we looked at her before. We looked at her as something, you know, something, hope for everyone, for, you know, for all the ethnic groups and for everyone in the country. But then when she became in power, she mainly focused all these changes for the Bama people. Well, you know, the, the mainland yeah. people, like the military was still fucking killing people and killing ethnic groups. They, did they do something, you know, like, so then for the ethnic groups, what's the difference? And so, while Andy was hopeful that his country might take a better path, he was not exactly convinced that things were going to get better. Conflict within his family eventually pushed him to make the decision to leave. My dad was very abusive, right? He would beat the shit out of my mom every day like that. It was fine. Like, it was fine when, I, when we were younger. We couldn't do anything. You know, we just kind of watched it, right? But the older we got, the more we involved, the more we tried to stop it. Um, but then we were fight with him too, you know, and that, so at some point it became too much. And so I left my home, uh, I think in 2016, uh, just by myself. And I was like, I've been to Mesat. I will go back here, you know. So Andy lived across the border on his own for more than five years. He'd fallen in love, gotten a home of his own and set himself up in the sort of odd jobs you can do without papers or legal residency. And that's where things were for him when the Tot Madaw carried out their coup in early 2021. 2021 February 1st I was in Mesad I, I was here and um, yeah in the morning I woke up called me my girlfriend and uh, she said the military just did a coup in your country you should call your family the military claimed voter fraud and used that as the pretext to stay in power it's a situation that should be unsettlingly familiar to most of our audience for a while safe in Mesad Andy watched it in horror as he texted with friends and family across the border they arrested Aung San Suu Kyi and all the big leaders right at the top. So we were kind of like, okay, are, is someone going to tell us what to do? And especially for us, we didn't have any experiences. We didn't know anything about any of this that I'm talking about right now. I didn't have any knowledge of that. But yeah, so after, I think, six days, the military cut off the internet, like for like two days. And I've lost all contact with everyone inside, my family, my friends. And that's the night I started planning it. Like, I started thinking, oh, fuck, I should go back. And like, and, and I saw the protest photos from Yangon. They looked amazing, right? And I'm like, I'm a photographer. I should be there and, you know, document that. While Andy was staring at the protest photos from the capital of Myanmar, Naypyidaw, as well as Miawadi, and the largest city, Yangon, 
wondering he should take his camera and document yet another rising for democracy in his home country. A young woman named Amira was in the thick of those protests in Yangon. When the coup started, Amira, age 17, had just finished high school. She was looking forward to university, and more pressingly looking forward to playing futsal with her friends. She liked to spend her days crafting, she says, making little things to gift or to keep. Like every other day, when she woke up, she spent 10 minutes in medication before facing the world on the 1st of February. Aung San Suu Kyi was her hero, she says. In our interview, her boyfriend translated for her. We'll get to their story later. But when the coup began, they lived a world apart. But they joined their whole generation in feeling enraged by the Tatmadaw trying to rip the freedom their parents had fought for from them. Amira took her rage into the street. Someone gave her a bullhorn. Because of her voice, and then she became the leader, you know, with the... Yeah, the bullhorn? Yeah. yeah. What kind of stuff would you say to the bull, through the bullhorn? Hello, uh, uh, she's saying uh, this is unfair, and then uh, this is what uh, the 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 arresting the Aung Suu Kyi is unfair, not fair. Oh okay. Oh gotcha, gotcha. Uh, okay. uh-huh. Yeah yeah okay. Yeah. And then and then she believed that. Uh, uh, she believed in uh, what Aung San Suu Kyi mm-hmm. said, like uh, everything is possible, and uh, we haven't do anything. We haven't studied yet, and then mm-hmm. but uh, when we study, and then uh, we we can finish it, it, it. So everything is possible. So so that's what she believed in. So she she went on the road, and then she protested. Across the city from Amira on coup day. Miaok's girlfriend woke him up with the news that the government they'd voted for had been arrested. We're calling him Miaok here because that's his name in the revolution. Everyone has one. Amira's his baby because she's so young and yet so fierce. Miaok, if you're wondering, means monkey. These revolutionaries who have risked life and limb for each other didn't know the legal names of the people they call their revolution family because it's safer that way. And we don't either. Miaok had spent the night, well, I'll let you hear how he phrased it, actually. I was just like, I was chilling with my ex-girlfriend, you know. Yeah. I was chilling and we were, you know, Netflix and Chay. Netflix and Chay. <laughs> like 31, yeah. 31 January, Netflix and Chay. I think it's a Sunday. I think it's yeah. Sunday. Netflix and Chay, and we, we sleep together. If you didn't catch that, they were Netflix and chilling. You know, I was literally not wake up by any louder show. I was so asleep. Mm-hmm. But... But at the 4 a.m., there's a phone rings and I, I suddenly wake up. There's phone ring from my girlfriend. Uh, her auntie called call, call, call her and yeah. she said, uh, there's a coup de fee. Oh, uh, and she wake up, uh, she told me, there's a coup de fee. Ah, I didn't, uh, you, you know, I, I don't believe it. Yeah. I don't believe it. I didn't believe it. So other than I, I checked the social media. Yeah. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, may I actually do this? Mm-hmm. I'm so angry and I'm so angry, you know, I was going to down downstairs and I told to my family, it's good that everyone's angry. Mm-hmm. And at those times, the, uh, the internet, they cut off. The next revolutionary we're going to meet is a fellow we'll call Dr. Wonder, because that's his revolution name. When the coup started, he was just waking up after a 24-hour shift at the hospital in Yangon where he worked. 
Doctors were some of the earliest and most visible dissidents in the protest. Their rarity, and therefore their relative value to the regime, made them a potent symbol of the pro-democracy movement. But, as Dr. Wonder made clear, many older medical professionals were not at all certain that resistance was the right move here. At the morning, I saw the news. That bad news, really, really bad news for us. Because, uh, how could I say that? Uh, they broke, you know, yeah, they broke our future. Doctors were some of the earliest, most visible dissidents in the pro-democracy protests. Their rarity and relative value to the regime made them a potent symbol of the pro-democracy movement. But, as Dr. Wonder made clear, many older medical professionals were not at all certain that resistance was a right move. On that morning, we go back to our... Uh, our society, our, our hospital, we are young guys, you know, uh, all professors, all consultants, they not much interest about that yeah. because they told us, um, you know, whoever rules our country, this is not our business. It is one of our seniors doctors from our society, from our department, told us like that. But, we reply him, no, it should be the last time. If you didn't catch that, he said it should be the last time. The last time kids had to die in the streets. They didn't want another generation to have to go through the same thing. So they got together a proposal, a sort of manifesto for peaceful nonviolent resistance, and they submitted it to their seniors. We negotiated with our uh, you know, young residents, mm-hmm. our society, and we discussed about that. And we plan to start with our, one of our uh, prior movement before mm-hmm. civil disagreement. We have got a red ribbon movement because, uh, because uh, we want to strike peacefully on the media. Okay, we started like that. Yeah. And then uh, some of our seniors from our society, they, they were from Mandalay Hospital. Okay, they accept our proposal. Mm-hmm. Yes, because uh, our generation has already passed that difficulties before. Yeah. But not your generation shouldn't accept that. Three days before the coup, TK got off a plane in San Francisco. He's from Myanmar, but he lives in the Bay Area now. Before you ask, he says that the Burmese restaurant there is not as good as the stuff back home. Uh, it's only three days Three yeah. days before. Three yeah. days before, I, I I went back to the to the United States, and I, I wish I I'm stay in a Yangon and uh, doing the revolution and uh, participate in a uh, every way that I can, mm-hmm. but uh, I couldn't do uh, from the from mm-hmm. the long distance, you know. Mm-hmm. So so that's all I can do for now. TK had just been in Myanmar. He had connections to many people on the ground there. His friends were there. His family were there. When the government cut off internet access, he remained able to get good international reporting on the situation in his home country. Slowly, he found ways to communicate with his friends and a growing core of the protesters taking to the streets. I, I was a keyboard fighter. <laughs> I have no idea about the politics. I have no idea about the military stuff. This is the single most common sentiment we've heard across all the revolutionaries we've met. 
None of them considered themselves to be very political prior to the coup. They started marching in the street because a military coup was obviously bad, but they stayed there because the violence dished out by the state was so horrific. Safe at their house in Mesot, we talked to the boys and his brothers and cousins, all of whom were living in Napador when the coup kicked off. It didn't take him long to try and join them. Then I went in, I went to Miawadi, which is across the border in Myanmar side. Um, and I was there for a week and it was, it was something else. Like I've never been to protests. You know, I've never been involved in any of this thing. And I never thought I would be, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. I always thought like I wasn't going to be a part of it. But when I went there, the first day I arrived, there were 200,000 people on the street protesting. And then it's like, and if this big group of people walk in streets after street and everyone coming out of their house. And we have this symbol, like three fingers uh, from Hangar Gang, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's like our symbol for democracy now, our, our, our movement now. And everyone come out of their house doing that. And, you know, like giving us water, food, all, all, everything. It was beautiful. Like it, it was something else. It was something else. And then from that day, I was like hooked. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to be a photographer and I'm going to in this, you know, and I'm going to I'm going to take photo of these people and their stories and I'm going to share it. And that's that's my part. That's my rule. Soon, he found friends among the protesters. Within a few days, he was feeling a feeling that so many people felt in 2020. It's a feeling you felt if you've ever been in the thick of a crowd of people filled with righteous anger and facing down overwhelmed police or soldiers. It's a sensation I can't really describe to you if you haven't experienced it, but I can say that there's no time that I've ever felt more empowered than the times I've been crushed shoulder to shoulder with strangers, toe to toe with state violence, and watch cops break and retreat. It's incredible, it's addictive, and if I'm honest, it's probably why Robert and I booked a flight to visit a stranger I've been DMing on the gram. Um, I think after three days, I, I met this group of people, young people, like students trying to be lawyers and stuff, and I figured out that they were the ones trying to organize these big protests, like 200 people, 100,000 people. They were the ones that's making that happen. So I started kind of following them, trying to get close because I wanted to get stories from them. Um, and then they became, they, and they realized what I've been doing. They've been watching like, and so they were like very welcome. And they took me to this hideout that they go to. And then we will have discussions, meetings about what we should do the next day. Da, 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 da. Um, but then kind of, it's cause it's a small town, right? Slowly, I think police and military started realizing that we are that group too. So by now you're probably wondering what that cover of Dust in the Wind is. It's a song the boys learned when they first took to the streets, but it tells a story of a previous revolution, one that didn't succeed. That's pretty good, guys. Yeah. Can you tell us what that song's about? Like, do you know what the lyrics are and stuff in English? Yeah, yeah, we, we can try. I heard the word democracy in there, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like all the lives that were lost in fighting for democracy. Yeah. Do people use it 
Philip Spring Revolution as well as 88. Yeah, because yeah. it's the same thing. Come on, me too, y'all. Look, look, look. Tell the world, and that's the name of the song. Tell the world, it's called. Yeah, like tell the world. Tell the world. So basically, the song is like, um, yeah, they sang it in the back in the '88, and then it's like we used it quite a lot mm-hmm. when the, when we were in the protest too. Um, yeah, and the lyrics are, "We'll keep fighting until the end of the world." For the sake of history and revolution in our blood, and of the fallen heroes who fought for the democracy, um, oh, our dearest heroes, this is the land of um, like heroes, like yeah. And yeah, it goes on and then yeah, basically saying like something like the history went wrong along the way, but we have to fix it. And, yeah. Like the country has shed its blood, and how could they commit such violence to its own people? You know, um, yeah, and yeah, like they say, like the the blood on the roads and the streets are not dried yet. Um, and for the sake of these people who have died for the democracy, for fighting for democracy, uh, for the sake of them, we have to keep fighting. Basically, yeah. Now. In their exile, they keep singing it, to remember the first day of the revolution, when the fights were in the street, not the jungle, and before they lost so many of their comrades. Yeah. And then there was the night protest in front of the police station. Candles. Yeah. Oh, this is, they're singing the song they just sang. Yeah. It got very, very heated. The protests our friends were just talking about occurred in Miawadi, but the song popped up all across the country. When you made it in Yangon, did you all sing it? Uh, yeah, they, they, in Yangon it wasn't one guitar, it was a whole band. Yeah. Like, well, we have like protesters sitting down and then there's a group of people who are playing this and repeatedly there are a bunch of songs that we'll play and then there's like words that we would say and yeah. Like slogan yeah. And you'll see from the footage how yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. How it make you feel singing it now? Uh, it's scary, you know. It's like yeah. the the song. Is uh, about... The song is very real. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like at, at first, um, um, we didn't want to play the song. It's too dark. It's too. Um, it's too intense, right? Yeah, body, yeah like, yeah. yeah. But it's not like, the lyrics are there, like, you can see it, you know, it's like, because we we've been through it too, so it's very intense. And, yeah, I think the first time I heard it, like, I heard the song, and I remember that weird feeling of, yeah, still have it, like, every time we yeah. sing it now, like, this is not one of the songs that we usually sing, like, <laughs> it's not yeah. a fun song, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Pediabo <laughs> 
On the next episode, which you'll be able to download tomorrow, we'll talk about how the hunter began to clamp down on the protests and how the protesters decided this struggle was too important to abandon and decided to fight back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Like many people in Myanmar, the boys weren't usually political before the protests. But what they saw in the streets changed them. This wasn't about a minor disagreement between two parties. It was about fighting for the right to live their lives without a boot on their necks. The 2021 election had delivered a victory to Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy and delivered a resounding vote of no confidence in the political arm of the Tatmadaw, the nation's military. It's worth noting here that yes, we are compressing some complex things. The elections weren't perfect, and people in areas that were largely non-Burman tend not to support the NLD. The NLD had failed to prevent a genocide. But in a country that was well accustomed to harsh military rule, there remained a better option than a military which saw ruling as its right and its soldiers as separate from the citizens. So, when the military lost a record number of seats, 
Everyone knew what would happen next. The same thing that happened in 1988. The same thing that always happened when the people came a little too close to taking power from their military. So that happened on February 1st, 2021. And um, first few days, we didn't know what to do. We, I mean, we, we knew the military was going to make a coup because when the NLD won the election, that's, what, that's how it started, right? And, and, and the military is saying that they, you know, they cheated. They, they, like, I don't know how to say it. They, like, fucked up the votes and, you know, they make themselves win. It wasn't true. I mean, the military was not going to win at all. Like, it was, because like I said, there were changes. You know, people saw those changes. And, and people were saying, yes, if she had one more, you know, like four more years, five more years, she could make a real difference. Those first few days of protest, everyone says, felt hopeful. Just like our protagonists and Zor, who we met in the previous episode, thousands of young people ran into the streets and found solidarity in the simple politics of fuck that guy. There were so many people, man. It's insane. So in Miawadi, there was, I think, 200,000 people that day. The marches got bigger every day, and it seemed like nothing could stop them. Briefly, Western news organizations published stories and everyone hoped that the UN or the US or the EU would show up and the Tatmadaw would be dealt with once and for all. Yeah. I was trying to film, but then one of the guys pointed the gun at me and I was like... Ugh. But none of that happened. The story stopped. The West never sent a single bullet or soldier, and the Tatmadaw deployed thousands. Even after a year, all the boys remember the first time they saw the force of the state turned against them. Even before he got out of the border town of Mayawadi, Andy saw the Tatmadaw begin to fight back against the movement that had grown up to oppose them. It's a story we heard from everyone we spoke to. Once they began organizing, the cops started trying to infiltrate their groups. I think police and military started realizing that we are that group too. So then they started uh, trying to like track down. So there was one night where two of the guys almost got arrested and then they ran away. And then we're like, okay, they they are kind of following us. Yeah, yeah. And so after a week, um, same thing happened. I was living because I wasn't from Yawadi. They didn't know I was just a new face, so they didn't really know where I live or you know. And I always like take like two, three taxi just to get to where I was staying. You're staying with like a friend or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But is it the same place or are you like switching? No, that was the same place, but it was out of town. Three of his friends got arrested. They're still in jail. Actually, in jail is the best-case scenario, because the Tatmadaw make a habit of executing captured activists. The stakes were life and death at every moment, and covering the movement on a daily basis took its toll on Andy and his brothers, too. So my younger brother, um, they were in the capital city, and the, the first time the military killed someone, they were there. They were in the same protest. So they saw the whole thing, and um, you know, they were traumatized. And so I thought the second time I went back in, I thought, well, you know, like, it's better to bring them all together with me, like in the same place and we do it together, than all of that spread out everywhere, you know? And like I say, my family's military kind of on the military side. So uh, they didn't like that my brothers were going out to protest. So then I was like, okay, I'm gonna bring you guys. Um, and yeah, so we did all, uh, we did the young protest together, six of us. They came face to face with the potential cost of their struggle. And they were in Nepiro when that happened. The yeah. capital city of Myanmar, and it's it's military city, mm-hmm. so it's very heavily controlled by the military. 
And the first time they went out to the protest, um, the military shoot people, and he shoot was people. yeah. He there was like these trucks with the water cannons. Yeah. So he got hit by one, and like he he wasn't feeling well, so they took him to the ambulance. But then once he got in there, there was a guy without his eyes because they shot like bullets into him. Um, he was fucking traumatized with that. Yeah, yeah. I remember him. Yeah. When Andy says Napiadaw is a military city, he isn't just saying it's a city like Colleen, Texas, or San Diego. Napiadaw is a city created out of nothing, starting in 2002 to be a capital for Myanmar. If you've seen it at all, it's probably in a TV show that mocks the totalitarian excess of building seven-lane motorways in a city that was, until recently, only populated by the people building it. Top Gear played car football on the empty freeways, and the TV show Dark Tourist also featured the city. Today, it is a real city with a real population, but everything about it was designed to reinforce authority. And yet, the boys and thousands of others took to the streets here, streets built to reinforce the power of the people they were fighting, to demand that the military listen to them. Andy shows us a picture of the man with his eyes shot out. It looks how you think it would. And it is worth noting that shooting people's eyes out is a time-honored international policing tactic. In 2020, U.S. cops shot more than 115 people in the face with less lethal munitions. 30 suffered permanent damage to their eyes. But in Myanmar, everything escalated several levels higher than that. Shooting out eyes wasn't radical violence for the Tatmadaw. They treated it more like stretching before a run. In one protest, the boys saw some drunk people tossing water bottles at the police. The police responded with live gunfire. When the police come forward, the people are, are turned to the back side. Mm -hmm. and, and they retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, it's running. very uh, intense yeah. situation. Yeah. People are running. They also, the, some guys uh, throwing rocks back to the police. Yeah. yeah, that's when the police started shooting. Andy translated the next part for us. Uh, he so he was in the protest, yeah. and then uh, they started shooting, and he ran away. And but he was not in his neighborhood or in his area of the city. He was somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so when they started running, he didn't have anywhere to go. And then someone um, like accepted him at the house. They say, "Come in, come in," and he hid. But I know that. So yeah, he hid in that house for like two hours until the shooting stopped. It wasn't until they got home that they realized the police had killed someone. In the early days of what became the revolution, people formed tight bonds and made radical commitments in the form of illegal activity, while the Tatmadaw was still scrambling to counter the counter-coup. Everyone felt the clampdown bite at a different time. It took longer than average for the cops to find Amira and her cadre of revolutionaries, but eventually that day came. It came as she and her friends were gathered in a tea shop preparing for an action. At that time, uh, on that day, they are trying to uh, protect mm -hmm. in a Sanjiang provenience. Yeah. Uh, so before the protest that they gathering the people at the tea shop. Yeah. Uh, they sit in in the table with with her teams mm -hmm. uh, about including her five people mm -hmm. but uh, she have to go and uh, give the banner yeah 
to the other groups. Yeah. Uh, so she's leaving just about like uh, this match, mm-hmm. and then then uh, the the soldiers came into the tea shop, and then arrested her teammates. Yeah. She's lucky. Yeah. To escape close, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really narrow, you know. Yeah, to, yeah. To, yeah. So did she go leave immediately? She yeah, go home? yeah. So that's how she came here. Okay. Because uh, her teammates know her, where she lives, mm-hmm. her house and everything. Yeah. So she has no choice to stay in the Yangon. But uh, she stay organizing mm-hmm. her teams to the protest in the Yangon. From here? From yeah. here. Yeah. What did her parents think when she had to leave? So her parents told her uh, the, the survival it's the first. Mm-hmm. So she can do whatever she wants, and I, but she have to be on her own. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. Yeah. And then they, they, they don't, they agree, uh, you know, like if, if, she, if she wants to leave, just leave. If, if she say want to do the, you know, uh, protesting or whatever she wants, and uh, they not saying no to her. Yeah. Okay. But they're not supporting either. They're just sort of saying she's on her own. Yeah, she's on her own. Mm-hmm. That that's how uh, last night I, I I told you guys that uh, she lost her inheritance. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, she have to give up on everything. Mm-hmm. Wow. Over in San Francisco, TK could see what was happening through his scouts on the ground and soldiers' posts on Facebook. He started to amass a huge amount of intel. He also knew where the underground groups and civil disobedience movement centers were in the cities. And when he saw the cops of the military coming for them, he was able to give them a heads up. So whenever we, we have like, a, you know, a information about uh, from the, you know, some CDM soldiers, mm-hmm. some CDM police, and then they gave him the information ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got the information. Okay. So like, uh, okay, those guys are going to the, you know, let's say, okay, uh, this place. Mm-hmm. And then within one hour. Yeah. So from that place, whoever live in the underground mm-hmm. teams, move out. Get out. Yeah, yeah nice. get out. Yeah, so, so, so that kind of things, uh, with, with that, we save a lot of people too. Yeah. And then we got arrested people too, but uh, we, we also save people. Everyone we spoke to told us the same story. They went into the street thinking that if they made enough noise, the world would listen, and that the US or the EU or the UN would defend democracy and evoke their responsibility to protect innocent people being gunned down in the street. To quote from the online publication The Diplomat, endorsed by all member states of the United Nations in 2005, R2P advances a potentially revolutionary idea that state sovereignty entails a responsibility for a government to protect its population from mass atrocity crimes and human rights violations. When a nation fails to exercise this responsibility, R2P grants the international community the legal warrant to intervene. The doctrine authorizes the use of a range of coercive tools, with military intervention as a last resort. People in Myanmar thought that if they were peaceful, civil and respectable, the governments of the world would do the right thing. The governments of the world, however, didn't give a fuck. But yeah, so the protests are very, very peaceful. You know, it's, it's when you go into the protests, it's very peaceful, very organized. 
very um it's they try to make it look so clean so nice because i guess you know no it's it was at the beginning they were trying to get attention from the international community and they were hoping that someone will come in and say you know take down the military and put the our government back yeah a, a lot of people die just like there was a saying like to un you know people were saying how many like how many dead people do you need for you to take action right and there are people saying i will if you need one more i'll be that person i'll just fucking die i'll just get killed by the military so that you will come in and fix it and change the situation in the country right amira felt the same she even organized a protest of 500 people displaying a map of the whole country on the river in yangon she called it a suicide mission but she thought it would send a visible signal to the world and that it was worth risking her life to make the statement at the time uh, she 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 didn't know anything about the politics so she believed in a r2p because uh, uh people are protesting peacefully but the government take the action so other countries not gonna wait and then see and then they're gonna take the actions about that that's what she believed in and then she she decided to go uh, protesting peacefully to the end okay did she think that other countries united states whatever were gonna come in and intervene yeah yeah that, that that's what she yeah. thought like yeah. you know when the war see the government take the actions and the government are uh, killing people and then if they if the war knows and then we, we can get a half from the from the other countries where they did find support within other countries in asia fighting against dictatorship they formed the so-called milk tea alliance and drew on the example of hong kong to learn how to stay in the streets when the government doesn't want you there but then when it happens in our country it's like oh fuck where does it happen before and then we went back straight away hong kong and there was it's not just us like there were so much infographics and like know how to be in the protest how to do certain things uh, depending on the situation um so we had a lot of information we were yeah we were looking through and i think that these are the same thing that like people in hong kong used i think but hong kong didn't have snipers shooting kids in the head or cops firing rifles blindly into crowds but then uh, later on like by the time we got to yangon people were sitting down and there were little protests what the military does is they would come in and they would just start shooting everyone there was no There was no negotiation there was no hey guys can you move and then you know any any of that stuff they would come in and they they would treat this as a battlefield and it didn't take a while it didn't it, it, well it did take a while i think it it took about like a month and a half for us to finally say fuck the peaceful protests fuck the international community they're not coming if they would have come they would have come a long time ago you know and we started fighting back But when we say we fight back it's like Molotov cocktails slingshots Dr. Wonder knew exactly when and how police were killing people he would spend his days triaging people who would survive from those who might not make it soon the worst nightmares of his medical team were coming true as the police began seizing his colleagues for the alleged crime of saving lives I remember uh, before the military military police and military man I totally totally intruded our hospital one day uh, i think uh, at the middle of the may okay they totally intruded our hospital because uh, they have a, uh, they have heart uh, our cdm doctors are doing operation at that hospital 
because we have no more, no, no another place like that from trauma center. We we could give a uh, good treatment for that uh, traumatic patient because but, uh, we have to take a risk. So, so we cannot take a rest. Soon, one of our contenders was arrested at that emergency unit. Wow. Okay. Because uh, he took he took also his risk. Because yeah. if he wasn't here, his junior can not handle that situation. You know. Yes. You so know. He had to go. So many tens, hundreds injury injured patient on that day. Uh, mostly are uh, cancer patient. Yeah. You know, some are open abdomen, yeah. open limbs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, so many crises on that now. Things only got worse. Yeah, yeah. There was a pregnant woman um, who got shot, and obviously with a kid inside her, and she died because she accepted like twenty protesters in her house, and when they came, they shot her dead. And she wasn't like five weeks old. It's it's you can see that she was pregnant. The military use straight up real bullets. Like, yeah. they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit that the way the military control people is fear, right? So then they want people to see that if you go against me, you'll die horribly. And they, they shoot the head. We saw so many faces with holes, in, you know, so many people with holes in their face. And it was fucked up and it was scary because every time you go out, you're saying that could be me. That could be my brothers. That could be, you know. Very quickly, the revolution organized itself, not with hierarchies, officers, or vanguard parties. The people who'd existed in those roles had already been arrested or fled. So instead, the revolution started with people giving whatever they could to the struggle and taking whatever they needed to get by. The revolutionaries we interviewed all initially thought that the struggle would be short, that the world would come to their aid. But even when it became clear that this was not the case, they continued to fight. Under the logic, it's better to die than live with a boot on your neck. Mm-hmm. They took mm-hmm. all the leaders from the opposition side, so there was no one to tell us what to do. There was no instructions, right? So there was like two days of, okay, what the fuck do we do, you know? And then people started protesting, but small, like very small. And then I think after like five days, then there was like 200,000 people everywhere. <laughs> like, no, that I remember the first day we arrived. Um, I mean, we haven't seen each other since COVID started. So it was like, ah, brothers, you know, back again and mm-hmm. together. Uh, and then, yeah, it, it was quite fun for like one night. And then we were all hanging out and trying to plan what we're going to do the next day. So basically, uh, I, we kind of planned that like each of us had a role. And our plan was to go out and kind of be like a media crew, right? So we're filming, we're writing news, we're posting on the internet so that everywhere else people can see it. Um, so yeah, two of us are like the camera people and then this two, they look out for the roads and the streets. Like, because these places we've never been, right? Yangon in these areas. So whenever we go to a protest, we'll sit down or we'll walk around and take photos while these twos goes around and look for the fastest escapes. You know, if the military come in, what would be the best way to go? Mm-hmm. Would you know, escape? And then uh, him and another one, they kind of look after us. They look at the news um, to see what's happening around us. So that if there's a post on Facebook saying, oh, there's a military truck heading towards you, we kind of be prepared, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was... I don't have energy truck, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> so we had a lot of energy at that time. Yeah. It was like <laughs> constant. We were going out, out, yeah. out, out. And... You can see, like, is always following me. Like, that's me and Lim, him. And he's always following me everywhere I go. So that if something happened, he can just grab me and run me yeah. While the boys and Andy were reporting, Amira found her calling on the front lines. It's almost impossible to stress how incredible she is. Before we recorded, she casually dropped into conversation that she also trained in knife fighting sometimes. We met her at a shooting range near my sot and blasted a few paper targets together with a 12-gauge shotgun we'd been using for a bit of target practice. When it jammed, and it always jammed, she cleared the chamber and got it back into action with a practiced efficiency that any formally trained soldier would have recognized. In the revolution, it didn't take long for her to find her way to the front lines, and she's got the scars to prove it, including some from hucking a tear gas grenade barehanded back at the cops. Others adopted roles, too. Some picked up shields and took on the police toe-to-toe. Others supported protesters with medical aid and food and water. So you can see the shield, two, three, four, five, yeah. to yeah, to make it... And then you can see, like, they have these wet, like, plastic bags to, like wash people's faces when they're tear gas yeah. or like um, to kill the smokes with yeah. the they oh, have yeah, wet towels too yeah. and then there's someone always watering it like yeah. you see here yeah and this is all from the, the neighborhood like they provided to us they built barricades and even developed a system of communications for when things were getting violent this allowed folks who were not comfortable to get away or at least that was the goal so the white flag means like we have this place like this is our but then the black flag means we'll fuck you up back like if you've done so much that we're gonna fuck you up you know um i have video of it when it changed to from white to black their tactics improved over time when one group got kettled another group would pop up nearby and draw soldiers away Oh, <laughs> so wait, and then uh, there was one time when one of, one part of the city was under attack by the military. Yeah. A lot of protesters were trapped in there. And so we decided to go out. So every other part of the city came out at nighttime to protest so that these soldiers have to kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amira, too, came face to face with state violence. <laughs> She wants, she wants to take the action back because uh, uh, they are all protesting peacefully. And uh, at that time, she wants to have a superpower. Mm, yeah, maybe she does. Uh, what, so what did, she, what did she decide to do? What did, what did they do? At that time, and, uh, she feels like she's going till the end. Mm-hmm. And then she will keep moving, and then mm-hmm. she will participate in uh, every role that she can, and then she will do as much as she can. That's that's what she okay. decided to yeah. do. We saw that picture of her in front of the car, and it was burning. Yeah. What happened there? Were they throwing Molotov cocktails? Yeah. Okay. So, like, uh, smoke bombs and then something like that, mm-hmm. and then she's trying to throw them back. Oh, I've seen the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she picked it up, and then she threw them back. Did it hurt your hand? Yeah, you have a scar. Fuck. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It then, uh... She got hit by the smoke bone, like, uh, twice. And then, at that time, uh, she lost everything. She lost her bags. Mm-hmm. She lost her phones. And then someone 
have her to hold and then mm-hmm. took her back. Okay. That's how she escaped. Wow. The they, uh, they helped you. Do you know who helped you? Was it a friend or just a stranger? Her friend is with her. Mm-hmm. And then when the tear gas uh, hit them, and then the other strangers had them. And then she got hit by the tear gas, and then she, and then she almost faint and a blackout. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> Our doctor, who goes by wonder, faced a difficult choice. Returning to the hospital meant risking arrest. The military could come in at any time to arrest injured protesters and the doctors helping them. But not going back meant letting his comrades die. As state violence increased, he decided he needed to help. They killed so many peaceful protesters on that day. I think around about nearly around 100 or more, might be yeah, more than that. We see these, yeah, yes, so on that day, you know, or because uh, we have already, we have already started civil disobedience movement on that, on that time. Yeah. Because we didn't go to the hospital, that was ruled by that generous. Okay. Okay. So we deal outside the hospital, you know, we, uh, we managed temporary camp like this because for emergency injured patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, um, I was involved one of the uh, campsite. Yeah. Because, but actually we can deal. Yeah. Uh, some of the injured people that may need for emergency operation. Like that uh, bullet go, right. go through, yeah, go yeah. to break the bones and open wound. Yeah. So, but we have to take the risk because we have to operate that patient. We go to hospital, trauma emergency department. We did our operation. Uh, I remember that night, one of the patients was uh, shot down by mm-hmm. police. And they chased, they followed that patient. We kept that patient in our hospital, in our ward. We emergency, well, we did emergency operation at, on that, at that night, on that night, and we em- emergently moved him out on that night because we can't keep him on that hospital because uh, soon he just left our hospital. Yeah. The police just came and searched for him. Okay. So but this is one of our, our experience because yeah. uh, they just fight uh, their gun. Yeah. Uh, where is that guy? TK got on Telegram. Lots of people couldn't be on the ground fighting, but they still wanted to be part of the struggle. He developed good connections with people on the ground. At first, that was just him desperately trying to stay informed. But soon he realised that he was well-placed to be doing the informing. With internet access cut off and VPNs slowing down, only someone outside the country with blazing fast Bay Area Wi-Fi could collate all the info coming in and turn it into useful, actionable advice for protesters on the ground. At that time, we know nothing about it. No one's, no one's teaching us what to do. Yeah. So we have to... Do it, do it, you know, like uh, we, we, we met, we, like I said, we have uh, 70 people, so we have a meeting every day, every night. So mm-hmm. we try to, you know, brainstorming what we're going to do. Yeah. And then so we're making, we making the plans and then we're making like, a, okay, we're going to get the information from, you know, every single details that we can get. Mm-hmm. And then that's what we're going to share to the people. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to share to the underground teams and okay. other people. 
Within a few weeks, it had become clear that a diverse range of people, tactics, and tools were going to be needed in the fight for freedom in Myanmar. Next time, we'll talk about how that fight took shape and tell you what it's like today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Sitting at a pool bar in Maysot, listening to covers of Creedence songs by the house band and losing at pool against Andy and the boys, it's hard to think of them holed up behind a barricade, clutching Molotovs. But not so long ago, the choices the boys faced were pretty stark. Every day, every time they went out from their little apartment, they knew they might not come back. But I think the most fucked up thing that we had to plan was, uh, what if someone got shot, one of us, and the other person have to go carry? Um, who, who do you go? Who gets hit? You know, and we had to kind of like what we did just now. But like, okay, if I get hit, you know, two of you, this, this and this person will come out and, you know, do this to me. Because it's, it's um, I don't know, I think we were planning because it just, it's just good to have that, you know, because if, if someone gets shot and if all five of us go run in there, there's more targets, you know what I mean? So then like, if someone with weight, less weight 
get shots and you know this person go if someone heavier gets shot this two person go something like that when andy says like we did earlier he's talking about a small stop the bleed type course that we had given the boys most journalists operating in war zones will take at minimum a week-long hostile environment and first aid training or hefat course Many of us will take extra courses. James and I both refreshed our wilderness first responder certificates once we had this trip planned. Andy and his brothers didn't have access to any of this. They learned what they could off the internet and tried to protect themselves as best as they were able with gear they purchased from an airsoft store. The afternoon we spent practicing skills wasn't nearly enough, but until they can travel safely more than a few miles from the border, it was better than nothing. Their little apartment had one way in and one way out. If the cops came, there was no escape. They had a plan for that, too. Yeah, so our plan was literally just to burn that fucking door down. So then it would be difficult for them to come in. And then, you know, we'll do, I don't know, whatever we can with the weapon we have. Um, but we weren't going to make it out, you know. And, and having to plan all that with these kids, like, it's, like, fucked up. There were times that, like, they wake up at night screaming. Like, they, you know, they, I think now it's better, right? It's been a year and a half that and we are, like, we're better at coping with it. But at that time, it, it was very, very scary. So that they'd be prepared to burn their door and the rest of their apartment down around themselves, the boys kept a stockpile of Molotovs mixed and ready by the front door at all times. They lived in a state of permanent readiness to commit revolutionary suicide for weeks on end. Eventually, they decided they had to flee. We should probably talk history here for just a little bit. Myanmar is a new name for a very old land. Over the centuries, it's been ruled by a series of empires and dynasties. The Mongols took over for a while in the 1200s and 1300s, and when they left, Lower Burma had a warring states period of its own. The modern nation of Burma didn't start to come together until the 1600s and 1700s, and things didn't really congeal into a state until the reign of the last two Burmese kings, who industrialized the country and reformed its military enough to win a series of wars against neighboring groups, like the Arakan. This is what brought them into conflict with the British Raj, right at the turn of the 19th century. Their wars were sending refugees into India, and the Burmese king's designs on Thailand and British-controlled Bangladesh led to a policy wherein the Brits supported insurgent fighters who struck out at Burmese positions. A series of near clashes between British and Burmese forces followed, and in January of 1824, the Burmese king, Bagyadaw, gave his generals the order to attack. A pair of brutal jungle wars followed. Despite winning several victories early on, Burmese troops were crushed comprehensively whenever they engaged British forces in conventional battles. In January of 1886, British forces entered the capital, Mandalay, and brought an end to Burmese independence for almost 60 years. These are the broad strokes of the story, as you'll find them summed up in almost any history book. As with most colonial history, the reality is somewhat messier than that. The Burmese Empire the British destroyed was dominated heavily by the Buma people, who gave the colony its name. But there were other peoples in the territory they claimed. The Shin, the Karin, Urakan, the Rohingya, and dozens more. Like most empires dominated by a single ethnicity, they were brutal. Father San Germano, who lived in pre-Raj Burma, wrote of the king, He is considered by himself and others absolute lord of the lives, properties, and personal services of his subjects. He exalts and depresses, confers and takes away honor and rank, 
and without any process of law, can put to death not only criminals guilty of capital offenses, but any individual who happens to incur his displeasure. It is here a perilous thing for a person to become distinguished for wealth and possessions, for the day may easily come when he will be charged with some supposed crime, and so put to death, in order that his property may be confiscated. Every subject is the emperor's born slave, and when he calls anyone his slave, he thinks thereby to do him honor. Hence, also, he considers himself entitled to employ his subjects in any work of service, without salary or pay, and if he makes them any recompense, it is done not from a sense of justice, but as an act of bounty. And while Bagheera was a fairly modern king, brutality like this went back hundreds of years in the region. Most of the kings and princes and other people who ruled the land we now call Myanmar did so with brutal force and an awful lot of conscription. This is broadly true of much of Southeast Asia. Western histories of this region tend to flatten life into kingdoms and empires and assume life in the region coincided politically with the lines drawn on maps. This was never the case. Much of mainland Southeast Asia, from the central highlands of Vietnam through Myanmar, northeast India, and several southern Chinese provinces, is filled with terrifying mountains and brutal hills, covered with the densest jungle imaginable. Standing in Maesat and staring across the border into Myanmar, all you see is a vast expanse of jagged, deep green peaks rolling endlessly on. James and I are both experienced backpackers, and neither of us would have wanted to take on that terrain without quality gear and weeks of endurance training. In an era before planes, helicopters, or satellite communications, this area was practically ungovernable. People were aware of this at the time, and for roughly the last 2,000 years, this chunk of highland Southeast Asia, known to political scientists as Zomia, has been a refuge for people pushed out and put down by the great state powers of the area. Empires and kings would stick to the coasts and the flat plains, perfect for cultivating rice. When they taxed their subjects too hard or conscripted too many of them into the military, some would flee to the hills to take their freedom. As James C. Scott, a Yale poli-sci professor, writes, The frontier operated as a rough-and-ready homeostatic device. The more a state pressed its subjects, the fewer subjects it had. The frontier underwrote freedom. He calls the people who chose to inhabit this stateless zone barbarians by choice. While many of these ethnic groups were mocked for their lack of so-called civilized values, like widespread literacy, Scott argues that this lack was actually a conscious rejection. Their refusal to educate themselves in a manner acceptable to the powers of the day was a rebellion against the legitimacy of those powers and their standards. Human history in our modern globe is filled with places like this, Muddied areas at the borders of great powers where the detritus of war, refugees, and beaten soldiers can congregate without fear of the state. The term for these places is shatter zones. Rojava, the radical feminist enclave in northeast Syria, would be one example of a shatter zone, and the unique political potential such places have. Myanmar is, by landmass, mostly shatter zones. And since 1949, different ethnic armed organizations have existed in a more or less constant conflict with the state. This includes the Karen people, whose territory borders Thailand. When the young millennial and Zoomer protesters in the cities realized they were going to have to flee their homes to continue the fight, Karen territory was a natural place to retreat to. People had been making versions of the same decision for 2,000 years. The current situation between the Karen and Myanmar's military junta actually owes a lot to the British Empire. When they took over in Myanmar, they had to figure out how to govern it, and they went with the tactic that had served them well all across India and Africa. 
They picked a minority ethnic group to act as their colonial shock troops. In Uganda, their preferred warrior race were the Kakwa people, from whom future dictator Idi Amin descended. For their colonial troops in India, the Brits used Sikhs and Gurkhas. And in colonial Burma, they used the Karin. Ever since the British left, the Karin have wanted as little as possible to do with the central government in Naypyidaw. Instead, they fought to maintain Kadule, a land without darkness, as they were promised in Burma's 1948 constitution. Today, they might not be recognized by the UN or the US, but the Karin have their own schools, hospitals, and army. They have been at war since 1949. Andy, whose father is Karin, only really found out about the struggle for Kwadule, a home for the Karin language peoples, when he became a refugee. He moved into the camps along the border after the Saffron Revolution. He was only eight years old. The border is dotted with camps, some of them more like towns, but they're always temporary, and while the Thai government tolerates the Karin presence, people there are seen as temporarily displaced. They can't build solid homes and don't have the identity documents they need to travel, even internally in Thailand. Despite not growing up there, Andy's identity card says Karin. It doesn't take a PhD in history to know that ethnic identity cards issued by imperial and formerly post-colonial governments are bad news. But if you need more information about that, maybe Google ID cards, Rwanda. Like most people in most places, the young people from Myanmar we talked to had thought relatively little about the injustices on the edge of their world. They tended to think of the Karen as terrorists up in the hills rather than freedom fighters. But once the Tatmadaw started unloading machine guns into crowds, people were confronted with the reality of a situation that they'd been able to ignore before. Suddenly, they saw that the Karen and other marginalized ethnic groups were victims of the same government violence that they now faced. And now that the scales had fallen from their eyes, they were going to do something about it. The main majority of uh, groups, people, they are Karen people, which is another ethnic groups from uh, Myanmar. And they, they had a different view, right? Because obviously the military, while we were like, because we were born in the city, we were more like, a, you know, like we didn't suffer that much, even though it wasn't that great, you know, but then for them, the military come to their states, the military come to their villages, they burn the villages, they kill the people, they rape the people, you know, they do all these atrocities. Um, so then they have a very different view on the Myanmar military and how the country is, you know, working doing and um um so that's when i started learning oh shit like there is some other stuff going on in the country but you know like you kind of just like you kind of just live with your life you know you, you're a kid you're trying to i don't know get by day to day like so you didn't really think about it um and for me that go on that go that went on for a long time until uh the military could happen in myanmar the present revolution is not the only flare-up of inter-ethnic violence in the country in 2017, the Tatmadaw under Ming An Klan began a concerted campaign of genocidal ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya people, a largely Muslim ethnic group who live in the country's Rakhine state. The Tatmadaw, claiming the Rohingya were variously terrorists or illegal immigrants native to modern-day Bangladesh and hence not native to Myanmar, spent months raping, killing and burning the villages of the Rohingya people, while the world perhaps distracted by a neoliberal consensus which demonizes both migrants and Muslims, did fuck all to stop them. In Myanmar, nobody spoke about the genocide, at least not in those terms. Most people didn't even speak about the Rohingya in those terms, because Tatmadaw propaganda was so effective 
that citizens in Yangon really believed that the Rohingya were migrants and terrorists coming from Bangladesh. Government newspapers like the New Light of Myanmar published daily stories linking them to groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, who, despite their best efforts, remain totally irrelevant in this story. Bots popped up on Facebook, which is basically synonymous with the internet for many people living in Myanmar, and fed a steady diet of anti-Rohingya hate speech into political discourse, gradually shifting the Overton window towards genocide. And without better information, most people believe them. Andy's Western friends, probably weirdos like me who'd crept into his DMs at some point, started to ask him questions. So the Rohingya thing happened in 2017. I was 17. And, um, you know, we, we started hearing, I, I started getting phone calls from my friends in the Western countries, like Westerners. They would be like, hey, what's happening in your country? Why are you killing, like, all the Muslims? And I'm in, like, mess out Thailand. And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard anything like that, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, and then, I, like, I try to learn a little bit more, but everyone had so intense opinions about it that at some point I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't know anymore, you know, because the military was in control at that time still, kind of. So they, they control the news, they control the media, they control, it's the same thing, you know, like, they control who was saying what. And so we never hear about it that much. If you only... If only you care so much and you're following everyone that is saying, you know, the, the truth, then you know. But otherwise, you, you didn't know. It was all very blurry, very... So that, that's another time when I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, like, I, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to, you know, and then went on with my life. Um, and yeah, I, nev I never realized how much, uh, like, how much they had to suffer. And they, they are still suffering, right? No number of international protests had stopped the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya. As they huddled, hidden in their apartment, Andy and his brothers began to embrace the need for deadly violence against their oppressors. We never had any plans, actually. We were just like, no, I think, I remember, it's like, that was not really planned. It was like, they killed our people who will fucking hurt them back, you know? It wasn't to get their guns or shoot them back. Like, we didn't even know how to use any of that, you know? And honestly, we didn't even want to kill them. We just want to be like, you can't do these things and not feel, not feel any, any, anything, you know, not, not feel any consequences of that. Like we're not fucking, we're not animals, you know, you can't just come in and kill one of our friends and think that we're not going to do anything back, you know, like and if we let that happen, then they're never going to stop. You know, you, they were trying to scare us and we were trying to scare them back, but they actually kill people. We didn't, we never wanted to kill anyone, you know? Andy's situation felt hopeless at this stage, trapped at the capital and watching his friends disappear one by one. It seemed like he was running out of options. Thousands of young people in Myanmar felt the same, and some of them decided to take an option they hadn't even known existed a few weeks earlier. While we were in Mesat, we conducted a phone interview with a former rebel fighter named Alex. Like everyone else we talked to, he woke up on the 1st of February to find out that his phone didn't work and the internet was out. Yeah, uh, I thought like it was just, you know, like something wrong with my phone. And then like I started talking to my friends and all my friends are having the same problem. So we looked down and everybody is like rushing down to the market because we live close to the market. And like they were like, you know, like doing like, like buying lots of rice and like food to like store because like no one knows what's going to happen. Like everyone else, he wasn't that into politics but he was absolutely not into having the military fuck with every aspect of his life. So he got into the streets. 
at first, like, we are not like that into the politics and stuff, so we didn't know. But then, you know, like, they can even, like, shut down the internet. It's kind of, like, controlling our, our life, right? So, like, if they can even do that, like, you know, like, we cannot imagine, like, what other things they can do, and which they did, like, killing the innocent civilians and stuff. So, yeah, at first, we just, like, oh, yeah, we need to do something about this and then join the protest. He and his friends later found a shop to buy gas masks, tasers and goggles. But even with all their gear, they were powerless against soldiers with guns and tear gas. He said that the next few weeks were hard. Protests were less and less safe, but nobody dared to talk about their plans to take the fight to the military. Everyone was worried about informants and snitches. We didn't really, like, actually talk about uh, those stuff, like, we're only, like, discussing about, you know, like, uh, protesting and also, like, how to get attention from the, like, embassies and stuff. But uh, for, like, fight, fighting back and, you know, like, going on the wars, or, like, I think, like, almost everyone, they just decide on their own. Unless they have super, like, trusted friends. By April, he says, he'd seen people die in the streets. He decided that protesting wasn't working and he needed to pick up a gun. The only problem was he didn't have one, nor did his friends. He knew some people who had guns and hated the Tatmadaw, but he'd been raised his whole life to think of them as terrorists. Before this, we've been, you know, like, brainwashed by the military, like, pretty much our whole life. So, you know, we always think all ethnic groups are like, uh, like, you know, they will kill like, whoever they see or anything, like, they're just terrorists, terrorists, yeah. right? That's what, like, the military, like, make us believe our whole life. And I was kind of scared to, like, join them because, like, yeah, I didn't know, like, you know, how to live there or, like, if they're going to kill me just because, like, I don't speak Karen. So, yeah. It was, bizarrely, his boss who hooked him up with the rebels in the hills. But he couldn't tell anyone he was going in case they got captured or turned out to be a snitch. Instead, he packed his bag with some of his old clothes, didn't even say goodbye to his family, and took a bus. He got off that bus and waited until a man in the car picked him up. By that night, he was in the jungle. During the first night there, like, you know, we have to go guard, like, one of the leaders from the jungle, like, you know, like, train us by, you know, like, walking in the dark in the forest. So we have to walk to, like, somewhere we don't even know and we have to sleep in the, like, deep jungle. He'd read about the PDF on Facebook, but suddenly he found himself among them. Technically, they're a distinct unit fighting for a return to democracy, but in practice they're trained and equipped by the Karen National Liberation Army, who have been fighting for federal democracy for decades. Pretty soon, his opinion of the Karen had changed. But, like, during my time, I did some observation about them. Uh, yeah, it was, like... Obviously, like the government, it's not the current people fighting the gov- uh, the military. The military has been like you know like invading the current villages, like current land, and yeah, they've been like banning down the like villages, uh, like raping the women, you know, like killing the people for like many years. So they cannot do anything but to fight back. You know, they have to fight back to protect their land. Just like Zor the now-deceased rebel soldier who we interviewed for our last series. Alex received rudimentary training. He'd never fired a gun before, and supplies were very limited. But he still got a kick out of sending a few rounds downrange. Like, not even in my dream, like, I never thought, like, I will be, like, 
holding it again or like shooting shooting it. So it feels pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you re- what kind of gun was it? Was it a point two two or was it? You know, yes. Uh, the first one was point two two. Was it hand homemade, handmade, or was it you know? Uh no, it's not handmade, but it's kind of pretty old. Even in the jungle, they were worried about moles. It took a while to make friends, he says, but eventually he fell in with a cop who had defected, a photographer and a construction worker. Their plan, he says, was to train up in the jungle and then go home and fight in the cities. Like our like idea was, you know, like we went there and train for a few months and then go back to the city. And like, I, we thought like, it's gonna be like a huge wars in the cities, like in Yangon or Mandalay, and also like everywhere in Myanmar. But yeah, it didn't turn out like that. <laughs> but instead, he found himself pulling sentry duty in the jungle. For a city kid, it was scary alone out there in the night with a gun surrounded by potential threats. I felt like you know, like okay, like it's gonna happen tonight. Like they're gonna come to our base tonight, so we. I'm gonna have to shoot that. <laughs> I have to protect my people. <laughs> the funny thought. But it didn't happen, <laughs> yeah. Alex spent eight months in the field, pulling sentry duty and learning the skills of a soldier. But without arms and ammunition, there wasn't much he could do. And his whole time training, he says he only fired five shots. I feel kind of useless because we don't have like enough guns. Uh, you know, like, so by the time like there was a like airstrike happening in Lake uh, uh, I thought like, oh, we're gonna have to like go and, you know, like fight them now. But instead, like we have to pack our staff and move to a deeper jungle. Yeah. So we were like kind of like refugees with uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, if I'm just keep staying there, like we if we are just going to keep running away like this, like I don't want to stay there. Uh, I want to do something about the needs, like the main needs in our campus, the weapons. So I want to like come here and like work for that. The transition was hard. For eight months, he hadn't seen a light bulb or a flushing toilet. Now he crossed a river and everything seemed normal. Every kind of weird, like you know, from the jungle and metal, it's just a small river across. And then like the life here is totally different. Like people are living their normal life and not having to like worry for like any things or like. It was like in the whole time I was in jungle, you know, like we have to worry about our country and like we don't want to live a normal life until the you know, like the military is gone. So like, but then like here, everyone is living a normal life and it's just only one river across. Now that he's across the river, we won't say where, he's still part of the revolution. He's raising money and doing interviews like this, trying to organize medical supplies and hoping that one day he can return to his country. Not as a refugee with a uniform, but perhaps as a soldier liberating his people, or better yet, as a citizen in a free democracy. Myok wasn't ready to be a refugee quite yet. He quickly found a role for himself in the militant side of what had become a full-fledged civil war. Before the coup, he'd been studying engineering at university, and he liked to understand how things worked. Although Alex and his comrades had a critical shortage of weapons, Miok didn't only make guns at first. He made bombs, too, using knowledge that he'd gained after traveling into the jungle and getting training from Karin experts in explosives. And, as he told us, they were very effective. Do you think the explosives... 
took out any soldiers. Of course, some yeah. explosives is out for the building. Some explosives for their base. Uh, some are the trouble. So okay. you know they they came and pick the ball and trying to cut off the ball and yeah. just explode. So they oh, die. Wow. So my uh, trying to cut off the what? Cut off the wire, bone wire. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. But they die. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so it's like, uh, my best memory is that we are using and the very first ETN. Mm-hmm. ETN in 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 Think uh, 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 Now this revolutionary things, the whole things are arrested. Mm-hmm. The whole things are arrested. It's very sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when they made 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 the EDM ball, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we we had the the ambulance ambulance how mm-hmm. many ambulance bike or ambulance land yeah. ambulance land. It's like five five ambulance track. Is coming here. Oh wow! Yes. Okay, this, yeah, you... I think this is my best memory. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Okay. So, wow. So like, the bomb goes off, and they have to send in five ambulances. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was it soldiers or police? That soldiers. Got soldiers. Yes. The 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 soldier who who checked the road. Yeah. It was just bombs that the young rebels learned about. They also shattered many of their misconceptions about the roles of men and women. As women like Amira stepped up to the front lines and fought alongside their male comrades, it became hard to ignore the sexism which underpinned much of traditional Burmese culture. The music you just heard from a Yangon punk band called Rebel Riot. They gave us permission to use it here. They have some great songs about the Spring Revolution, and this one focuses on the role of women. In the video, you see young women in the streets, and then you see them in the jungles carrying M16s. Myanmar might previously have had a woman leader, but gender equality had been far from universal. Andy told us a story about this, and we recorded it. But it was our last night in the country, and we were on our way to another spectacular hangover. One that would see me vomiting with such ferocity on our flight that an elderly Thai lady took pity on me and gave me her shopping bag once I filled up my sick bag. In the second month of the revolution, Andy said, when they were in Yangon, the protesters would build giant barricades to keep the police back. We've seen videos of these. They're pretty impressive. Huge mounds of pallets, boxes, and burning tires. We got some other audio of him describing them. No, uh, we could never get close to the military. Um, it was never, it was never attack. It was always defense. Mm-hmm. So uh, later on, when we started seeing how military cracked down these protesters, we started building these gates and like sandbags in our every base in the in the in Yangon, Nyaudi, whatever, all across the country. We started building these barriers so that the military trucks cannot just come in. And it's actually crazy because sometimes to build these things, you have to take over the road first. Mm-hmm. So like like a main road or a highway. So then what we do is all these little groups will gather. So one street, two street, three street, you know, and then we will go to that street or we will walk down the street saying, we're going to try to take over the street. Please come join. People will come down, people will come down from the streets, uh, from the buildings. And then we go to the next street, we say the same thing, and then people will join. Nothing they did could stand up to a tank, though, just as that shopping bag couldn't stand up to James's vomit. The military started using human shields to get through the barricades and the groups of people throwing Molotovs. Usually we would defend our places, right? We would use Molotov slingshots, uh, 
and we would resist, like we would attack, like we will be in the behind the gate, but we will kind of make them cannot come too too far, you know. But when the military have someone that they're gun pointing, just a normal civilian, and making him move, we can't do anything, man. Like we can't go through a Molotov, like you know. So that's when the military clean out all of that in Yangon, I think. There was a time when it was packed. It was every road had it, every street had it, and everyone was guarding that, right? But then when the military started, and they, they said it in the statements, they were saying, if that's near your house, you're responsible. Then they came up with a better idea. In Burmese culture, men fear passing under women's clothing. If it's hanging on a washing line, they'll go around rather than under it. It is, as Andy told us, bullshit. So they decided to turn that bullshit back on the troops, and they grabbed as many women's lunches, a traditional garment worn around the waist like a sarong, as they could, and hung them up above their barricade. It worked, he said, and just like that, a generation of Burmese kids realized that sexism hurts everyone who perpetuates it. Miak told us an interesting story about this. He said the first time he met his fiancée, he thought that she was pretty sharp for a girl. That, he says now, was his bad. Myanmar, he says, has some gender hang-ups, but he soon realized that she was the bravest person he knew. They went to protest together, and when something needed moving from one town to another, they took advantage of those gender hang-ups and her bravery, and she risked her life carrying weapons in her bags on inner-city buses. We'll let him tell you how they met. It's like uh, we we met on a meeting, like, I, you know, yeah. uh, we, we started making, maybe it's in the very first week, First week of match, mm-hmm. making very, 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 very respected memories. Yeah. The, the, the name of the meeting is brainstorming. Okay. Brainstorming. The name of the meeting okay. is brainstorming. At this time, she, she, she is very, you know, respected. She said the very thoughtful things. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, she is, you know, so, so thoughtful. I, I don't even mm-hmm. think, you know, in, in, in the Myanmar mm-hmm. uh, culture, is there's a gender, you know? Mm-hmm. So brains are always good like that. It, before is yeah. China, you know, something like that. So I thought, oh, she's really good, or that she's a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's my bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. I have some some China at those time, but mm-hmm. but later, uh, uh, I I met with her on the on the project. So I saw, oh, she is so beautiful. I, I thought she's just twenty or twenty years ago, but later we know, and later later. So we we, we keep doing together the things. Then she she is my backyard. I was in, on ground like mm-hmm. this, and we, whatever I have, uh, I have in danger, I only contact her. We asked him if he worried she'd get arrested while she was making trips into the mountains with guns and bombs. But he said no. Was it hard to leave her to go to the jungle? Because she could get arrested, you could get arrested. Uh, no, no, I don't know. She is very clever, so I, uh-huh. I, I never worry about her. So mm-hmm. I just worry about myself because she is more, you know, secret mm-hmm. and she is more clever than me. Yeah. So she only teach me how to be clever. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Miauk, Amira was falling in love as well. Her relationship was a bit different, though. At first, uh, we were in a group chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, did you make but, a private but, but, yeah. chat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you made the private chat. Yeah. <laughs> Who started the private? Who started chat? the private chat? Uh, I did. I I think I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because uh, at that time, I feel like oh, she is so young. At that time, she she's not even eighteen. Mm-hmm. She's seven, seventeen years old, yeah. and uh, she's leading the the one of the protest team. So okay. I'm like, wow. This girl is like amazing, right? Yeah. So that that's how I met her, and then that's how I, you know, 
try to hit her. <laughs> <laughs> now, admittedly, TK, the security guy, is translating here. He's also her boyfriend. And for now, he's here with her to make sure she's okay. When we met them both, it was just weeks after he'd arrived in Thailand, and the two had met in person for the very first time. It's a kind of story you can't help but find touching. Two people on opposite sides of the world, united by a fight for justice and the bonds of revolutionary care. At least it's a nice counterweight to all the stories of death and violence, which we'll have more of for you tomorrow on part four of this series. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Through the time we're reporting this story, Robert and I walked miles and miles around the streets of Maysot. Being the only two journalists in town, and also both giant white guys, we kind of stood out, and taking a taxi to a sensitive interview isn't always a smart choice. Even when it was, they frequently dropped us off in the wrong place and we'd end up walking anyway. Everyone in Maysot rides scooters, but riding without a helmet can get you a fine. We figured that as relative novices to the world of scooting, We'd probably fuck something up, and then we'd probably be better off walking. 
When the time came to meet Meowk, though, he offered us a ride. That was very nice, but it put us in an interesting position. What exactly do you say when a guy you've never met, who's a friend of a guy you DM'd on Reddit, who you know is engaged in the illegal production and smuggling of guns into a war zone, offers to pick you up at the cafe so you can go out for dinner? We decided to call our friend, a long-suffering guy we go to when we have a security question, Paul. At his request, we're keeping him anonymous. But he works in security and has an extensive professional background dealing with situations just like this. Or maybe mostly like this. Yeah, so basically, Paul, we're, we're meeting with these people. Uh, we don't have an established human chain with them of trust. They're, they're just a Reddit account that James has been talking with, but for like six or seven months. Um, it doesn't really seem like there's much else we can do besides... Uh, keep our eyes open and try to meet in a neutral place yeah i mean the the big concern is that it would be the government which is not um from what you guys have said the government simply doesn't have the uh, wherewithal to do operations like this and i mean rebel groups like this they're they're trying they want to get everything out there they can mm-hmm. um so, yeah, is, is there a concern about the fact that you don't have a chain of people that uh, can vouch for each other? Yeah. But the situation they're in, everything's in, in their favor. They are, Everything's in your favor. Right. Even minor cultural faux pas shouldn't be an issue. With Paul's help, we came up with a watertight plan. I should note here that he was at least as concerned with our fate as he was with the fate of the pair of pants he'd loaned James for the trip. And uh, I mean, yeah, it's a story that needs to get out. So uh, being slightly lax on the rules while knowing that it's in everybody's favor that it goes well, I guess you got to bend the rules sometimes. Yep. I guess we'll check in with yeah. people trying to do proof of life. Yeah, we'll do a proof of life. Yeah, we'll proof of life. I, will, I will send you a picture of James holding a piece of paper that says Big Wife Guy. For fuck's sake. And if, if we are kidnapped, I'll send you a picture of me that says Elon Musk will be a good custodian of Twitter. Yeah. Okay, I'll know that that's the, that's the sign. Yeah. You know, I'll uh, get a black hawk down. I'll, 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 yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll figure out something. Yeah, me and uh, me and a few friends will be on our way. God, that sounds awful. Yeah. James has my favorite pants. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to get those pants back. Right. Yeah, I'll wear them. Just, yeah. Oh yeah, this is all about the pants. If I find James's dead movie. body, I'm getting those pants off. Luckily, both I and Paul's trousers made it back that night. The only damage was to several delicious plates of food. Meowk, his fiancée, and their godfather were the most gracious hosts, and we decided not to record that first night. Instead, we met up the next day. But there is one thing from that night that I want to share with you. Rather than explaining it, I'll let the song Meowk played for us talk to you through the beautiful medium of punk music. Bella Ciao, of course, is an anti-fascist anthem, and in its original version tells the story of a young partisan who says goodbye to his girlfriend before he goes off to fight Italian fascists. If he dies, he says, he 
wants to be buried under a flower in the mountains, so people will see it and remember him. After a few months of revolution, all our characters found themselves mourning their friends, and many of them were in the mountains. Their struggle is one they see in the same vein as the Italian partisans who fought fascism in their mountains, and the anti-fascists who came from around the world to fight in the Spanish Civil War. I first heard that song, Bella Ciao, from a Spanish Civil War veteran, and it's a strange closing of the loop to be here, sitting, hearing it with young people who, just like the Spanish Republicans, are fighting a coup with next to no international support and a critical shortage of weapons. But Miauk was trying his best to fix that shortage. A month into what would become the Spring Revolution, and the stakes had become clear when the first protester was shot and they kept marching. When people decided to go back into the streets, they showed that the future of their country was worth dying for. A few weeks later, some of them decided it was also worth killing for. It was about then that Meowk's buddy and keen Reddit user Daddy UMCD said he'd been online and he reckoned they could use their 3D printers, a steel pipe, and the expertise of some strangers on the internet to arm themselves. The promise of revolutionary technology would take quite some time to have any kind of battlefield impact in Myanmar, but the effects of a different kind of revolution would be felt immediately. But the nation's young activists took up arms against their government. Uh, I was like, I'm interested in hardware and 3D printing, especially my profession is augmented and virtual reality. I want to test 3D printing, it's my hobby, so I just do, I just download some files from Thinkybus or other uh, 3D, 3D printing community and just do it for my test. Yeah. Not especially, not especially. Yeah. Yes. Like desk toys and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. just yeah. twice, yes. What did you think of guns then? I have never imagined of a gap because you know we have been living in a military booth for a long time, so we're afraid of soldier, especially not the soldier, especially the gun that they hold. Mm-hmm. So we are so afraid of that. So we never imagined like like we are the same as in North Korea. We are so afraid of that. Yeah. So we never imagined of making gun, but after that, the story began. <laughs> yeah. At first, Miao and his team felt safe, despite the dangerous nature of their work. He felt that the Tatmadaw was so behind the times they wouldn't even know what a 3D printer was. Like at those times, the military didn't didn't know or didn't give a fuck about a 3D printing. So it is okay at those times. Yeah. It's, it's really okay. Uh, when, when, when they came, we need to hide the, 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 the campus. 
if yeah. they see three D printer, that's okay because we will say this is mm. for our job or this yeah. is for some hobby that we can say at those time. But but not this time. If this time, if they found three D printer. Yes, cam cam go to jail like mm-hmm. this. <laughs> yeah. Or, or headshot. <laughs> yeah, headshot. Yeah. Soon, that headshot became a lot closer to being a possibility. It's like uh, as soon as we uh, we we finish the second second FGC nine, we trying to test it in Yangon, mm-hmm. and we send it to our warehouse. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, this warehouse is exposed and uh, uh, ambushed by the military, and this gun is is taken by the military, uh, and they, they they announce this on the news mm-hmm. by picturing this uh, like like uh, hammer guns, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Give fuck about this. Mm-hmm. Just, just a handmade gun. Okay. They, they just think at the very first time. But later and later, mm. well, later and later, when they, they when uh, the the second time they were arrested, at those time, uh, the they arrest my revolutionary from my team. Mm-hmm. So I told him about the the efficiency and how to use and the the history also the gun. At the time, maybe maybe he was a, you know investigator and he told the truth. At those mm-hmm. time, he says like. The FGC nine, yeah, announced announced the name FGC nine like like this before before the uh, at the very first time they announced the gun from the the, the target, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the gun from the target, yeah, yeah. If you missed that, they thought the guns were Turkish. The reason we giggled at this is that whenever we see videos of combat in Myanmar, James and I send them to a group chat and try to work out what the weapons are and where they came from. Nearly every time we're stumped, the guns turn out to be some kind of niche Turkish shotgun made to look like an AR-15. It seems the military were operating on the same assumption. Only this time, they were very wrong. Like Alex, Myok started this second, more deadly phase of the Spring Revolution by taking a trip out to the jungle, and he stayed for several months to learn some of the skills he was going to need to fight back against the taut Madaw. Uh, I was going the the mountain as a criminal nature, so uh, as uh, I'm not like the P- uh, I'm not have a PDA training or something like that. I just going as a criminal guy, so I met with some some gun specialist or some trainer, and I said I want to know how to shoot gun, how to disassemble the gun. So they teach me, and I said, uh, say I'm in a criminal nature, I I can't do the training. But I want to learn about books and other things. So they sent me some videos like this to learn by myself, yes. Later, he went back to carry prototype printed guns to the EAOs for testing. We asked if it was scary being an undercover gun runner in a dictatorship. He says it was, but he found that he had a powerful ally in his fight. Homophobia. Yeah, of course, of course, but we need to discuss it. So, you know, disguises, yeah, yeah, disguises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At yeah. this time, I have a long hair. Yeah. So I act like a gay. So, you know, that yeah. the military has so gender and equality. Yeah. So they hate gays. That's why this, this is our advantage. <laughs> the military, assuming Miok was gay and therefore incapable of fighting, let him go. Miok kept his mouth shut and let their homophobia help him smuggle the guns with which he hopes to help topple the regime that places so much stock in values like these. Miok said he had to go to the jungle to prove that his guns worked, because at first, the EAOs didn't believe him. Uh, about the gun, no one, no one believed uh, believe that. <laughs> no one believed that. So we have to make, make, make it fast and show them. So we made it fast. Uh, we said we got a gun. It's, 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 
It's a soft food. We lie. Yeah. We need to lie and we send this to the EAO. Yeah. Then they, they made it and it didn't work out and they adjust and it worked out. Yes. Okay, yeah. How do they feel when they found Oh, it? oh, oh. Uh, my, my, one of my revolutionary in uh, EAO states said, oh, they're really, really happy. They said, all the, all of the print out and uh, can't make much production. Let's do it right now. Yes, yeah. like that. Almost everyone we met spent time in the jungle. Rooney, that's a nom de guerre, not a given name, started off as a protester. And just like everyone else, he fled into the jungle to avoid being murdered by the government and to learn from the ethnic armed organizations how to fight back. Uh, when, when we try to make peaceful protesting and it's really break down then, we, he decided, like he also we, so we decided to choose to have an ants and to make, to, to make a revolution. So at those time he goes to the EO or states and he lands the trainings, you know, even uh, especially the explosive trainings, and he got back to the town and he started making this explosive with the head of the EO teachings. After learning from the EAOs, he came back to Yangon to put his knowledge to use. Of course, just like Miok's gun-making team and the street protesters who learned from Hong Kongers, he took to YouTube and Google to try and find a better way to build killing machines. So it's like the EO teaches the very business explosives just come out and you can put this here and the sugars are like this. But uh, after they land the very business thing, and, uh, and they, they want to improve. So they land by themselves, just like DIY. They land by themselves <laughs> with Google, with YouTube. So later and later, even they can make TNT and ETN. Yes. Wow. Okay. Using YouTube. He looks on yes, YouTube. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. Nearly everyone we met at some point Googled something like how to make gun or how to make bomb. Now, this is not ideal OPSEC, but it speaks to the desperation of the times. They used crowdfunding websites to raise money for ingredients, and Rooney soon started putting his knowledge into practice. What that meant was that people died. He killed human beings with the explosives that he made. Now, those people would have killed Rooney or anyone else we've spoken to in this series. He was defending himself and others by making killing machines. But still, if you're a decent person, it's not easy to watch your work result in a stranger being blown into a pink mist. It, he is not proud of that, but you know, or you know, he is never trying to kill even a cat or any man. Yeah. But he is sad, but he have to do because of revolution. Yes, yes. yes. of course. Revolution was in Rooney's blood. The military had stolen his house as a kid, and he'd grown up with his uncle sharing memories of the 1988 pro-democracy uprising and its violent repression. He'd seen his family, his cousin, brothers, and their parents harassed for his whole life. Now he had a chance to fight back. He carried out hundreds of missions before he eventually had to flee the city when an accident led to serious injury. Like in a, in a June, June 7, there's a nine mission. So he, he has to make nine bones, yeah. a really big bone. So they, they're trying to assemble this bone. At this time, one of his friends is smoking, and this, oh. this family is called to camp <laughs> After the blast, he had to run away from his house before the police arrived. His friend was not so lucky and is in jail now. Rooney is mostly recovered, but it's not safe for him to go back. So he's hoping to make a new start in Maisant. The fight didn't stay in Yangon and Naypyidaw either. For villagers living outside, the coup was just as real, and so was a desire to fight back. People outside of town found themselves in the crosshairs of the Tatmadaw as well. The military employs a strategy which they call Four Cuts. It's designed to alienate the rebels from local support. 
It doesn't work. This kind of scorched earth stuff has never worked. Didn't work when the Nazis tried it in Europe. Didn't work when the US tried it in the Middle East or Vietnam. It doesn't work when Israel keeps doing it. And it doesn't work in Myanmar. What it does do is drive people who lose their families to pick up a gun and kill soldiers. And it's not hard to see why. I just want to play you our conversation watching one of Andy's videos about one of hundreds of massacres that have happened since last February. And as a warning, the stuff we're going to talk about is about as horrible as stuff can be. But yeah, basically about, uh, I think, 28 people were killed that day. They just came into a village and shot everyone. Um, that's the handmade guns that these villagers had. But it was just, they weren't shooting anyone. Though. No, they just had yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's all the everyone died. All these guys died. Shit. Look at that. His hands tied? Yeah, yeah. Looks like the gay mom trying to tie their hands and Yeah. That's the electrical game. That looks like. And they burned the whole village now. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Christ. You guys okay? Yeah. Fucking Boy. hell. And that's why we say massacre because it's fucking. Yeah. Look at all the brains out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, all these kids. They weren't even 18. So all the villagers that ran away, they took a photo of the village from afar. And they burned their relatives and then left. Yeah. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> yeah, it was all. This is every bit of fucking horrible as shit. Andy says a non-profit called Liberate Myanmar supports the families every month, keeping them fed and sheltered. Because however hard the government tries to divide the people from one another, it always seems to fail. Instead, it just pushes them closer and closer together. While we were in Thailand, having a drink on a rooftop actually, and talking about some kind of meditation retreat that a guy we'd met had gone on, we got to see some of the action for ourselves. That night was a fun one. We were hanging out with some non-profit folks and we'd acquired some pretty terrible whiskey. At various points in the evening, we would ambush one of the boys and tell them they'd been shot in the arm or the leg and have the others rush in to practice their stop-the-bleed skills. Robert and I demonstrated some improvised carrying techniques and how to effectively turn and drop to the floor when you're in the intimate presence of a grenade. Everyone else at the party probably thought we were pretty strange, but we were having fun. Then, in the distance... We saw a huge yellow flash. It took a few seconds of us all wondering if that whiskey had sent us blind before the boom reached us. At first, we thought it was one of the airstrikes that had been happening in the border region. But it was close, and it was just one huge boom, not the rockets and cluster bombs that Tartmador likes to drop on civilians. Within minutes, minutes of nervously waiting on the rooftop to see what was coming next, Andy's phone started buzzing. It was a car bomb. And it had gone off about a hundred yards from the border where we'd stood earlier that day. Like a Camry or something. Let me see. Fuck. Yeah, right in yeah, the bridge. Right oh, in the middle of it. Now you're fucking scared, How did they fucking get it in there? Immediately we had questions, but very few answers. Car bombs hadn't been the thing thus far in the revolution. This was new. Car bombs are also extremely scary. It's hard not to be around cars in a city. And when any one of those cars might kill you, it's hard to do anything feeling any semblance of safety. I want to know who's dead. Well, I, I mean, yeah. UG or... 
Eugene probably. But yeah. That, no, car bombs, I've never heard of it. But they, it, it hasn't happened driving, here yet, right? Yeah, what would it be? Like, is it somebody who's driving it, or do they yeah. kind of like... Manage? I don't think it's someone driving it, is it? Like, you don't see anything there. Like, uh, No, I mean, it could have been. Wait, is it by the... Because um, if, if there was a person in there, the there shops. wouldn't be anything left of yeah, they, they Yeah, you wouldn't see the person. No, 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 but the thing is, look, there's the fence. Like that. That looks like it was there when it exploded. Oh, like it was right? parked. Yeah. yeah, it was. Wow. It looks like, like it was it's by parked. the shops. It's yeah, not yeah, right yeah. in front of it. Yeah. It's right by the bridge. Yeah. But then I don't know why. What this? What happened? We still aren't sure who set off the car bomb, or if anyone died in a conflict like the one in Myanmar. It's sometimes as confusing as it is scary. The military are more than capable of a false flag style attack, killing civilians and then blaming the PDF, and it has done this before. That's what totalitarianism does. It aims to control every aspect of everyday life, even the truth. The jungle haunted us the whole time we were there. Unattainable, but right next door. Just a few miles away, in Lake Ka, the fight was raging. Lake Ka is what's called a friendship town. It was built with Japanese money as a place for KNU fighters to live after they put down their arms. It was supposed to be a symbol of hope in a new peaceful and democratic Myanmar. Now it's a battlefield. But while we couldn't get there, we could walk along the riverbank and look at the jungle and imagine what it must be like up in those mountains, which we did almost every day. Myanmar itself looms like a mountain over the town of Mesot. It's a border town without a border. But the city is surrounded by refugee camps, nonprofit offices, and even museums for political prisoners that can't exist on the other side of the river. One day, we took a cab to see a monastery on a bluff overlooking the river, down into Myanmar, we could see a casino still doing business with Chinese tourists despite the bombing nearby. On the walls of the monastery were a colorful but horrific scenes of rape and murder, Buddhist stages of hell, a reminder that, according to the four noble truths of Buddhism, all life is suffering and greed is the cause of suffering. The same thing could be said for the refugees and fighters forced to hide in the endless green of the jungle, driven away from their homes by the greed of men who worship power. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. 
for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. It's not easy to leave your home, even when people there are trying to kill you. Dr. Wonder, like everyone else, struggled with the choice. His hospital had next to no supplies. COVID's third wave was ravaging the population, and he couldn't even get oxygen to treat sick patients. All around him was death and fear, but he still wanted to stay. Actually, I don't want to leave my country. Because if we just live like that, our country will be... Well, go back to yes, yeah. Uh, before centuries, you know, yeah. you know, they yeah. control everything. Yeah. We have to just queue. We have to just make a queue mm-hmm. to get a petroleum. Petroleum. We have faced in our young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't want to feel that feeling again. Yeah. Not for me. Not just for me. Not uh, for our people. For our new generation. I've got two younger sons. Yes. One is a five year. One is a eight years. So, uh, I just want to fight until my last breath. But I can't tolerate because they are trying. You know, uh, as an uh, underground movement, I'm trying my best. For Miaok, the decision to go was made for him by the top middle. We are making the, the meeting with him. He is in Anaconto at those times. Oh, he's in Anaconto, yes, yeah. at those times. So we're making a meeting, then asking him, did, you, uh, did he save or not, you know, yeah. at yeah. those times. Um, at the end of the meeting, he uh, he he told me that he, he was going to the inside. Oh, at the time, oh shit, holy shit, mm-hmm. he yeah. was arrested. Yeah. So, so at those times, I was living in the jungle, and, uh, you, you know, uh, the government, oh, sorry, uh, the, the military also announced the, 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 the remain to arrest. Yeah. yeah. Remain to arrest. So I think uh, all of my things said you have to go because you have all of the data. So yeah. you have to go. So I yeah. decided to go. Okay. Andy and the boys made the decision to abandon their apartment and head for Karin territory and eventually Thailand once one of their protest friends was arrested by the government. His phone was on him when he got caught, potentially exposing all of them. After a harrowing drive into the jungle and several days among the Karin, they succeeded in finding a people smuggler to get them across the border without getting stuck in one of the refugee camps operated by the Thai government. Three days later, we were trying to cross at nighttime. And these guys said, okay, you know, you go in, you cross, you get to Thailand um, the same night. 
and we thought, okay, you know, and we we swim across the river. It was very scary, but for me, I've done it like three times, so it was a little bit. I thought it was gonna be better, but it was more stressful because I had them right. So I was like, if it was me alone, maybe I could, you know, whatever happened, I would find a way out. I'm not sure if I could do that with three other people, you know. So I was uh, quite nervous. We paid what five thousand baht each. Hold on, I don't know. Jesus yeah. Christ! Yeah, it's not cheap. It is not cheap. That's it a is significant not cheap. bribe. That's it a is good not day's cheap. work for No, him. no, but because that's the thing. It, it's it's it not like just one person. Yeah. yeah, it's not just oh, one person. He's got a he the person that goes, crossed us yeah. from the river, from Yawuri to this side is one, and then from there to the no man's land is another one, right? So yeah, we saw the soldier. We're like we're fucked. Alex Jaden fought or attempted to fight with the Karen. But most of the time, all he did was stand sentry, worry about getting enough to eat, or wonder when he'd get his hands on something better than a squirrel rifle. I feel kind of useless because we don't have like enough guns. Uh, you know, like, so by the time like there was a like airstrike happening in Lake Eagle, uh, I thought like, oh, we gonna have to like go and, you know, like fight them now, but uh, instead, like, we have to pack our staff and move to a deeper jungle. Yeah. So we were, like, kind of, like, refugees with uniforms. <laughs> but, but, yeah, um, you know, if I'm just keep staying there, like, we, if we are just going to keep running away like this, like, I don't want to stay there. Uh, I want to do something about the needs, like, you know, like, the main needs in our campus, the weapons guns. So I want to, like, come here and like, you know, like, walk, walk for that. He called his unit refugees with uniforms, and that's about what they were. This is why rebels like Miok and Daddy UMCD are so motivated to find a way to reliably print functional semi-automatic weapons. The Karin are desperately underarmed, and yet they've been able to hold off the military for decades. If the Karin and other ethnic organizations were able to build functional arms production infrastructure alongside the new rebels with the PDF, they'd have a real chance at victory. If they succeed in building this, the repercussions around the world could be massive. That is, however, a story for another day. Seeing this kind of conflict isn't good for you. Nobody's supposed to live through this kind of stuff. And certainly not when they're just kids. Even in a rich country replete with therapists and VA clinics, thousands of US veterans live every day with PTSD. The difference for them is that they went to war. In Myanmar, war comes to you. And then there's another one, which is ta -da -da, this one. And I did the first part, and I'm too scared to do the second part. So. Yeah, I mean, this is fucked up. Like, every time I have to do it, I'm, I, yeah, I get yeah. my head get fucked. Like, yeah. You know? one of the guy and so that's in Yangon in the protest that's one of the night where uh, that's one of the day but yeah about 100 people we kill over 100 people um, you can see in the video um, they come in um, and um, you will see that the military how the military came in and how they were trying to I, I'm not sure if I have it anymore maybe here what they've seen has bonded the boys. They do anything for each other. 
and have already done things that most of us can't imagine. When one of their mothers wanted to take him home, he felt helpless without them. When the rest of them crossed, one of their mums came back to get him. Without them, and stuck in a country falling apart, he didn't want to keep going. Every day he watched soldiers outside himself, popping Yabba pills. Yabba's a meth-based drug that soldiers are often given by the military. He worried they'd kill him. His brother-in-law was arrested and tortured just for having a lighter. Can you remember what it felt like when your mum came to take you home? <laughs> he kept saying he's going to fucking kill himself for a long time. Yeah. For a long I time. I told my mom I will come to Yangon. I will pay off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I killed myself. He wasn't in a good space. Um, yeah, that, I, I live in Tanyin, Yangon. Mm-hmm. That's really dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's like the military space. Yeah. And I didn't like that. So he uh, was saying that um, if he has to go back, he was telling us, like, um, you know, now he's alone. Like, he doesn't even have us anymore. And so he was saying, like, he's going to go out to the protest and he's going to try to kill the cops, right? The soldiers, the police. And it was very difficult, like, for us too, like, because we know his mom can't really, like, help him with that stuff. You know, we can, but she really wanted to take him, so. Over time, they chatted on the phone, and he felt better. But now he's here, with the boys. It's him playing his guitar in the music you heard. Um, he got a lot better um, at coping with this in a good way, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, if you're young and you see people killing people like this terribly, you have some dark, fucked up yeah, thoughts yeah. yourself too, right? Like, yeah. oh, I could do this to someone too and stuff like that. So he's struggled a lot with that for a long time. And um, I think the worst thing was being alone. He was alone. He couldn't talk to his yeah. mom about all these things, right? He was paranoid. Yeah. He was scared. He was traumatized. So... I mean, the, you should see, like, the first time he... It's been five months since he was, he's here, but the first few months, it was very difficult. But, yeah. I'm kind of... Like, I talk to them all the time about this, because I know talking helps with these steps. Like, and especially when you all feeling the same thing. It's like, you know... And I think our ways of coping with this is, like, we talk about it, but, like, kind of in, like, a joking way, like... You put humor yeah. in it. Yeah. That's the best way to deal with it. Like To get through those hard days on his own, looking down at men who wanted him dead, he picked up a cheap acoustic guitar. When he got back, he began teaching the others. If you hadn't picked it up, they're pretty good. When we went out to the pool bar at night, in between kicking our asses, the boys would look up at the stage. It was occupied by a pretty second-rate cover band. For whatever reason, probably not helped by the incredibly rough Taijin we'd been smashing back, I looked at them looking at the stage on our last night and I wanted to cry. Teenage kids shouldn't be caught picking up guns to fight or picking up cameras to film their friends dying. They should be doing what I was doing when I was a teenager, which is making a complete prick of myself on a stage with a guitar. One day, hopefully soon, they'll be able to sing happy songs again and the war will just be a memory. I start learning guitar. Then, when you arrived here? No. Before, yeah. I don't uh, have friends for talk. And yeah. I don't talk with my mom, like so. I start like guitar. Yeah. And good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Their bond is so close now. And they're barely ever apart. It's a lot of responsibility for Andy, who's just 22 himself. But he wouldn't want it any other way, and neither would they. One night, 
Annie and Sarah have appointments. And so Robert and I take the boys for dinner. It's a lot of fun and actually a lot of food. But when we talk to them about their options as refugees who might be able to come to the US, one thing is clear. They don't want to be apart. For me, it's like, I'd rather fucking take bullet than any of them. Yeah. Because if they die or if something happened to them, I am in so much trouble, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I know that's, that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, if the mom trap him in Yangon and he doesn't do anything, and the revolution's over, he's going to feel so much regret, you know? Like, for not being involved in this. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's, for me, it's like, people, if, if people want to fight, like, you know, like we shouldn't keep them. We shouldn't just say, yeah. Yeah. It's been a few months since we got back from Maisant. It's the rainy season there now, and that makes fighting and reporting harder. Amira is still stuck in Maisant. It's not safe for her to go back to a country where her family wants her dead. But it's not possible for her to leave Maisant either. Without travel documents, something the UNHCR would have to issue, she's stuck in a little room in a hotel. It's not a great place for a young woman, and it's even worse when she has to watch her friends continue to struggle without her. We both wrote to the UN and the various embassies on her behalf, but months later, we've heard nothing. This is typical of a lot of refugees. They're often presented as a faceless mass of humanity bereft of hope. But each of them has a story, and those refugee camps along the border between Thailand and Myanmar are full of stories. Some of those are stories of fear, some of heroism, and some of tragedy. But until things change at the UN, all of those stories aren't being told. The 3D-printed firearms Miauk and his colleagues are working on have made massive progress over the last few months. But even though 3D-printed guns cost a small fraction of the price of an M16 or an AK-47, the pro-democracy forces are still desperately underfunded. They're at war with the state, but they don't have any of the apparatus of the state with which to fight back. Instead, the Gen Z rebels have turned once again to the internet. Alongside crowdfunding campaigns like Liberate Myanmar, they've developed a more innovative fundraising method that allows for donations even from people who don't have any money. Instead of soliciting cash donations, risking exposing their donors, they began using a method that they call Click to Donate, where supporters could help the rebels by clicking on adverts on certain videos and websites in order to generate advertising revenue. It's used to find everything from weapons purchases to shelter for the tens of thousands eternally displaced people in Myanmar. I spoke to several people in Myanmar who asked not to be named for their own safety, but are very familiar with the funding of the PDF. One of them told me, Click to Donate started to support government staff who had decided to join a civil disobedience movement. Government staff are always low paid, and so they were not very financially stable in the beginning. The funds from Click to Donate allow these workers to strike without pay. After a few weeks of being on strike, financial concerns were weakening the movement and people were being forced to work or starve. Younger pro-democracy activists responded by setting up YouTube channels, and then using the anti-coup Telegram channels to direct millions of views and ad clicks to them from across the country and from supporters abroad. The resulting advertising revenue allowed them to fund the civil disobedience movement and later to equip the PDF. By December of 2021, these clicks were yielding an income of about 500 million kyats, about $28,000. Every day. The military junta responded to this an international indignation at videos of protesters being massacred in the street by tripling data prices and throttling internet connection speeds. Pro democracy keyboard warriors responded with viral content that required less bandwidth, 
including writing personal finance blogs to attract a U.S. audience that was unknowingly supporting a revolution with its clicks. People in Myanmar also began to use VPNs to access the Internet. This helped them get around some of the junta's restrictions and also yielded a higher advertising payment per click on a given advert. Websites like Digital Revolution allow users to find content that supports pro-democracy rebels and click on it, lending their support with nothing more than a broadband connection and a few seconds of their time. Alongside their videos and websites, the Gen Z rebels also launched games. At first, they were just simple little online phone app games that would let you throw darts at the coup leader or something. One source told us that these games didn't just support the rebels through funding, but also provided a little bit of mental health care. You know, at least people could virtually kill the folks in their city, in their home, who were ruining their lives. And at the same time, the games earned the money, and that money went to fund the PDF. The most impressive of these games is the recently launched War of Heroes, which you can buy for just a dollar on the Apple and Google app stores if you want to check it out. In the game, which is available in Burmese or English, a player can fight as a man or a woman and take on government troops and even zombies. The money donated via these games and adverts doesn't just go into a black hole, according to the sources I spoke to. We have a click to donate Facebook page, they said, and regularly we release financial statements on the Facebook page saying, like, this month we gave 10 million kyats to that group. I spoke to Billy Ford, a program officer for the Burma team at US Institute of Peace. He says this kind of innovation is what's allowed the pro-democracy movement to survive in Myanmar since it was last violently suppressed in 1988. Activists and resistance movements in Myanmar have, historically, been an example to the world of creative, strategic and resilient models of activism, he said. This post-2021 movement has taken that to a new level, enabling it to defy all historical precedent and sustain an anti-coup movement for more than 18 months now actually gaining ground against a regime with an enormous structural advantage. Rather than seeing their lack of weapons and funds as a fatal flaw, Ford says that the highly online rebels have looked for areas where they could outflank the aging generals who stole their futures from them. The movement has leveraged its comparative advantages. Large numbers of people with time and tech savvy to raise money, he says. This tactic, although unusual, has been a great success, according to Ford. The approach has grown enormously, with one of the video games, for example, rising to become the number two paid app on the App Store at one point. However, all the clicks in the world might not be enough to sweep the rebels into Mandalay and return the country on its path towards democracy. Sources inside Myanmar say that less and less revenue is generated by a Myanmar IP address, and that they have had to encourage members of the People's Click Force to install VPNs to make their clicks appear to come from the US or Europe. Sometimes, the traffic is so massive that YouTube's algorithm mistakes it for an artificial intelligence botnet. They're looking, they tell me, at pivoting towards affiliate links and the sort of content-driven commerce that has swept the U.S. media thanks to the success of sites like The Wirecutter. Meanwhile, on the ground, PDF forces are regularly getting the better of the Tatmadaw in small-arms conflict, but coming off worse when they can't defend themselves against the Russian jets which the hunter uses to bomb civilian and military targets. Without man-portable anti-aircraft systems, the rebels are sitting ducks. The world has sent thousands of these to Ukraine, and none to people in Myanmar fighting the same battle for democracy against the same Russian jets. Despite this, they're not discouraged. PDF rebels tell me they have been scouring the internet, and they're working on a solution that doesn't need the apparatus of support of a state, and instead relies on stable broadband and the increasing ingenuity they've shown in 18 months of revolution. Democracy, type boy, dream, my child, show love. 
Hi everyone, it's me again, James. Uh, don't worry, I'm not coming to you at the end of a series to report something tragic like I did in our last Myanmar series. Um, I'm just recording this little message at the end to say that we're very grateful to Daniel and Ian for all their hard work on this. Um, we've gone through countless edits for this particular project and they've done a lot of hard work to get it to you in the form that you listen to it today and for the last week. We also want to say that Although this appears to be a podcast written and recorded by Robert and I, that Andy is very much a co-author and that none of this would have been possible without him. As we said, Andy's not his real name and we can't put his real name in the credits because we're worried for his safety. But his work has been invaluable and without him, none of what you've heard would be possible. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.